Let's take our Bibles today to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now, this text here in Philippians is considered one of the most difficult passages to understand in the Scriptures. It is brimming with profound theological statements regarding our Savior. Sadly, many Christians believe theology to be impractical for their lives or simply an academic pontification for seminarians. This anti-intellectual approach to Scripture seems to forget that Scripture was not written to theologians or seminarians, but to common people to enable them to live lives pleasing to the Lord. This passage, difficult as it may be, is written for everyday believers. Let's read the text. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, also, God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now to understand the commonality of this statement, consider for a moment that this passage, Philippians 2, 5-11, through was originally part of an early Christian hymn. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul placed it in his sermon to the Philippians, and he does it to convey two things. First, he includes it to convey key truths regarding our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And secondly, he includes it to convey practical steps on how Christians can get along. Again, it conveys key truths regarding our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And second, it conveys key practical steps on how believers, how Christians can get along. Now, one of the great truths revealed here in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, particularly verses 6 to 8, is that Jesus Christ is the acquiescent Savior. Jesus Christ is the acquiescent Savior. Now, the word acquiescent means to do something without protest. This is exactly what we find in our text. Jesus doing something without protest. And what is that? We see here Jesus without protest taking on the role of Savior of mankind. Jesus is the acquiescent Savior. Without protest, he takes on the role of Savior of mankind. Now, just what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the acquiescent Savior? What does it mean that without protest, he took on the role of Savior of mankind? Well, it means several things. And I'd like to go through this text for a few moments here and consider first that Jesus emptied himself. The acquiescent Savior means that Jesus emptied himself. Secondly, we will see that Jesus humbled himself. As the acquiescent Savior, it means that Jesus humbled himself. And then finally, as the acquiescent Savior, 
Jesus submitted himself. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He submitted himself. Now let's begin here first with the fact that as the acquiescent Savior, Jesus emptied himself. Notice that at the outset of our text, Paul states that Jesus is fully God. Look at verse 6 of Philippians 2. Who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, the term there, existed, huparko, means to exist in a certain state or condition. The present tense of the verb indicates this is an ongoing action. In other words, we see here Jesus existing in a continuous or ongoing state or condition. Now, in what state, though, does Jesus continually exist? Notice the term form. He existed in the form of God. Now, the term form, morphe, provides the answer. The word form, morphe, is the complete and permanent essence or nature of who someone is. He existed. He continued in a state of what? Of being God. That is, he has the complete, permanent essence or nature of God. Jesus continually exists in the complete and permanent nature of God. He did not become God, nor has he been anything less than God. Jesus is 100% deity. All that God is, Jesus is. Thus, if God is holy, Jesus is holy. If God is righteous, Jesus is righteous. If God is just, Jesus is just. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, the text says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Literally, the Word was face to face with God. We see the at least here two persons of the Godhead, though there are three. But here, the Word, Jesus, is face to face with God, with the Father. And the Word was who? He was God. That is, he has the complete, permanent essence or nature of God. John chapter 1 and verse 14. The Word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this is his incarnation. At a moment in time, the Son of God became or took on human flesh. He dwelt among us. We saw his glory. We saw the divine essence, the glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, John underscores that the same divine essence that we see in the Son is the same divine essence that the Father has. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Now the word image there is comes from the Greek term character or character as we would have in English. And it refers to the fact that he is an exact image. He is an exact duplication. It's a term that's used for uh, uh, coinage. Uh, when you would take a coin and you would impress upon that coin with a die an image, and every coin would bear the same image. It would have the exact representation of that individual. And so Jesus is the exact representation. And then finally, Hebrews 1.3. 
He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus is God. Now, since Jesus exists completely and permanently as God, what does that mean? It means that he is equal to God. Again, notice it says in Philippians 2.6, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, the term equal or equality, isas, in Philippians 2.6, means that Jesus is equal to God in quantity. He is equal to God in quality. He is equal to God in character. He is equal to God in number, and on and on we can go. There is not any way in which the Son of God is not equal to God the Father. Jesus did not steal God's deity. His deity is his rightful claim. John chapter 5 and verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, listen to this, making himself equal with God. You see, the Jews understood that by stating that God was his Father, that stating that he was the Son of God, meant that Jesus was equal with God. John chapter 10 and verse 33, the Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you being a man, make yourself out to be a God. Now, yes, Jesus was in flesh, and we'll deal with that in a moment. But these people understood that Jesus made a clear, specific claim. He claimed to be God, albeit God in the flesh. Thomas answered and said to him in John 10, 28, My Lord and my God. There in John chapter 10, verse 28, Thomas announces that, yes, this one Jesus is indeed his Lord and his God. Now, it's interesting there because he not only declares him to be God, to be Elohim, to be the mighty one, but he calls him Lord. And we've dealt with this issue of Lord before. It's the Greek term kurios, but when we look at the Greek term kurios in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we find that the term kurios is used to translate the personal name of God, Yahweh. So what is Thomas actually saying here? He's declaring that Jesus is Yahweh Elohim, Lord God Almighty. See, the deity of Jesus is important. You say, is it really a big deal? Does Jesus really have to be God? Yes, you see, the deity of Jesus is essential for Jesus to be our Savior. In order to be our Savior, Jesus must be God. You see, he must be God in that, he, in that God levied the curse of sin upon humanity. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19. When man sinned, and it was God who placed the curse of sin on man. And because God is the one who placed the curse of sin on humanity, only God can lift the curse from humanity, as we see in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Second, Jesus must be God because the punishment for sin is eternal separation from God. And only an infinite God could experience eternal separation from God in the span of three hours. 
So make no mistake about it, friends. If someone exits this life without Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they are going to experience eternal damnation. Not in three hours, but forever. That's what eternal means. It means forever. Jesus experienced that damnation, that eternal damnation for us on our behalf in the span of three hours on the cross. So again, in order to be our Savior, Jesus must be God first. He must be God in that God levied the curse on us, and therefore only God can lift that curse. And second, he must be God because the punishment for sin is eternal separation from God, and only an infinite God can experience eternal separation from God in the span of three hours. Again, remember, what did he say upon the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, in order to lift the curse, in order to deliver us from eternal damnation and eternal separation, Jesus had to do something. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now, I'll take a notice there at that verb emptied. That verb empty translates the Greek verb kanao. It is from this verb that we derive the theological idea of the kenosis of Christ. Now, if you've never heard that term before, that's okay, because we're going to explain exactly what the kenosis is. And if you're thinking, well, that really doesn't matter, it has no implication, realize that this is one of the key doctrines of Scripture, the kenosis of Christ. Without the kenosis of Christ, without the emptying of Christ, he cannot be our Savior. Now, that verb kenao, means to deprive of power, to deprive of prestige, to deprive of privilege. Let me define it another way. Kanao means to give up or lay aside what you possess. The question then arises, what did Jesus give up? What is it that he laid aside? What was he deprived of? Well, let's be sure he did not lay aside, give up, or was deprived of his deity. Remember, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6 establishes that Jesus exists permanently as God. If at any point Jesus gave up his deity, he would cease to be God. And if Jesus ceases to exist as God then the Father and the Spirit cease to exist as well because all three are coexistent. If one ceases to exist, the others cease to exist as well. That is why on the cross when Jesus died, it was his humanity that died, but his deity lived. Now, let's understand here. That while Jesus did not lay aside his deity, he did lay aside five divine distinctives in order to become our Savior. He laid aside five divine distinctives in order to become our Savior. First, he laid aside his heavenly glory. He laid aside his heavenly glory. John 17, verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Throughout all eternity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all three share the same divine glory. That's Shekinah glory. 
And yet when he took on human flesh and dwelt on this earth for 30 years, he laid aside, he gave up, he set aside, he deprived himself of that heavenly glory. Now I want you to understand that his appearance throughout all eternity made the seraphim, the cherubim, the angelic beings cover their faces. But at a moment in time, he exchanged that outward appearance for an appearance which men rejected. He took on a human form. So he laid aside his heavenly glory, his heavenly appearance. Second, Jesus laid aside the free exercise of his will. He laid aside the free exercise of his will. John chapter 4 and verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John chapter 5 and verse 30. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6 and verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Luke twenty two forty two, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, in each of those passages, what have we just seen? We have seen that Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself, submitted himself, in doing what? In emptying himself, or laying aside, giving up the expression, the free exercise of his will. This is the Son of God. He has the will to do as he pleases. And yet, when he became man, when he became our Savior, he laid that aside. In laying aside his will, in laying aside his wants, in laying aside his rights, his desires, Jesus became the servant. He became the servant. So he laid aside what? Well, he laid aside the free exercise of his will. He laid aside his heavenly glory. Third, Jesus laid aside the unlimitedness of his divine prerogatives. He laid aside the unlimitedness of his divine prerogatives. John chapter 5 and verse 19, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Here is the all-powerful Son of God, the omniscient one, the the all-knowing one, the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one, the omnipresent one, the all-present or ever-present one, who lays aside the unlimitedness of that. And now, while on earth for those 30 years, can only do what the Father allows. Luke chapter 5 and verse 17, One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Now here is the creator of the universe, unable to heal anyone on his own. He's laid that aside. And so the Lord had to empower him. Now we know specifically from Matthew chapter 12 that it was the Holy Spirit who rested upon Jesus that enabled him to perform those miracles. So all those miracles that he did, which do prove his deity, 
He didn't do them of his own power because he laid that power aside. He did those things through the enablement of God, of the Lord, of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's important here, by the way. Anyone who questions whether the Holy Spirit is truly indeed God needs only to read Matthew 12 uh, and the, the, the sin of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is accusing Jesus of doing miracles in the power of Satan, not the power of the Holy Spirit. In essence, what they were doing was accusing the Holy Spirit of being Satan. But taking that passage there, he did those miracles in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we come over here to Luke 5.17 and he did it in the power of the Lord, the power of Curios, the power of Yahweh. When we take those two passages together, it indicates what? That the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Listen, he was a man. Jesus was a man. He was the Nazarene. As far as anyone could tell, there was nothing extraordinary about him. But he performed signs, miracles, wonders on his own? No. God performed them through him. Elohim. Now again, same thing. We see that the Holy Spirit is the one who enabled him to do these things. He's called Lord back in Luke 5.17. Now here in Acts 2.22, he's called God, Yahweh, Elohim. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him, here it comes, with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You see, rather than use his own divine prerogatives, Jesus depended on empowering from the Father and from the Holy Spirit. The all-powerful creator of the world took on a created form with all of those limitations. He limited his omniscience, that is his all-knowingness. Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. What that tells us is he had to learn things. Luke 8 and verse 45, Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. Remember the woman touched him and he, he, he wanted to know who it was. That t- now, you would say, well, wait a minute, he's God. He would know that, yes, he could and he would, but remember, he limited his omniscience. And so he did not know. He chose not to know. Matthew 24 and verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Talking about the time when the Son of Man will return, that second coming, no one knows, not even the Son. The Son has chosen to limit his omniscience on that issue. He not only limited his omniscience, he limited his omnipotence, that is his all-powerfulness. Mark chapter 6 and verse 5, he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He could only do the miracles as the Holy Spirit enabled him. John chapter 5 and verse 19, therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So he limited his omnipotence, he limited his omniscience, and he limited his omnipresence. That is his all-presentness. John chapter 4 and verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to walk. He couldn't just blip. He couldn't just be here and then be there. 
Now, we see what happened after the resurrection. Though he still remained 100% humanity and 100% God, his humanity was changed. But in this, those 30 years, the humanity he had was limited. And so he had to go. He had to walk everywhere he went. Fourth, now again, we've said three things so far. We've said that Jesus laid aside the unlimitedness of his divine prerogative. We said that he laid aside his free exercise of his will. And we said that he laid aside his heavenly glory. Now notice number four. He laid aside his personal rights. He laid aside his personal rights. Second Corinthians 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that through you or so that you rather through his poverty might become rich he gave up everything including his own life he had to borrow a manger for his birth a boat for his ministry an animal to ride a room for passover and a tomb for burial he gave up all of his riches and in their place took on my debt and your debt of sin because he emptied himself as the acquiescent savior and fifth Jesus laid aside his intimacy with the Father and the Spirit. He laid aside the intimacy with his Father and the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be the sin offering on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen, when he became that sin offering, the Father, the Spirit, could not look upon sin so they couldn't look on him. Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Throughout all of eternity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit enjoyed being in the presence of one another. Remember, they were face to face. In his death, the loss of intimacy was displayed when both the Father and the Spirit turned away from Jesus for a period of time as he took on the full wrath of our sin. And so we see Jesus without protest, taking on the role of the Savior of mankind by emptying himself of five divine distinctives, his intimacy with the Father and the Spirit, his personal riches, his unlimited divine prerogatives, his, the free exercise of his will, and his heavenly glory. He is the acquiescent Savior because he emptied himself of those divine distinctives. Never gave up his deity, but he did lay aside for a period of time those divine distinctives. The acquiescent Savior. Acquiescence also means that Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself. Now, by emptying himself of those five divine distinctives, by laying those things aside, by divesting himself of those things, he was able then to humble himself. Again, look at verse 7 of Philippians 2. But made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Jesus had all power, all authority, but willingly laid it aside to become part of the human race. And notice that Jesus took lumbano, that is, he assumed the form of a servant. Again, that word form, morphe, refers to the complete, permanent essence or nature of who someone is. Now, he is and will always be for all time, God. 
But now, at a moment in time, he assumes the complete permanent nature of a servant, Dulas. He came not as a prince, but as a peasant, not as a king, but as a servant. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As a servant, his entire life, his entire purpose, his entire will were determined by someone else other than himself. For those 30 years, his life, purpose, and will were determined by his Father. John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is the Father's will? The Father's will was for the Son to redeem humanity. John chapter 6 and verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. You see, in order to accomplish this service, in order to accomplish the redemption of humanity, Jesus was made in the likeness of men. And what does that mean? Well, the term likeness, homoioma, means that while remaining 100% God, Jesus became 100% man. He did not exchange his divine nature for a human nature. He was not God in a human body. He took on an additional nature. He took on all the key elements of humanity. So he's 100% God, and now he's 100% human. This is what we call the incarnation. He was born of a woman, Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He, this son had to grow in wisdom and stature, Luke 2.52. He kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He experienced human sickness, human weakness, human infirmities. Matthew 8.17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Did Jesus get a cold? Yes, he did. Why? Because he's 100% man. Now, understand because he's 100% God, he does not have a sin nature. He has a human nature, but not a sin nature. This idea, well, I sin because I'm human. To err is human. No, to err is sin. You are a human nature, but you also have a sin nature. See, we have two natures. Jesus has two natures. He has a divine and he has a human. We have two natures. We have a human nature. We have a sin nature. We need that sin nature removed and replaced with a divine nature. Well, Jesus in his human nature experienced infirmities and disease. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, For indeed he was crucified because of weakness. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he was made like his brethren in all things, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He was made like us in all things. You have sleepless nights, so did he. You have a cult, so did he. You have anxiety at times over things, so did he. He was human. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who is tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. See, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us. We have a high priest who can sympathize. See, all those other high priests, they couldn't sympathize. 
They couldn't understand everything we had been through, but Jesus does because he's been through it. Now, even though Jesus is complete man, he cannot sin because he is complete God. Jesus remains forever God, and since his incarnation remains forever man. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. 1 Timothy 3.16, but by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Listen, it's a mystery. I don't understand how the divine and the human natures coexist subside in one person, but they do. But that's why Paul calls it a mystery. He who was revealed in the flesh, that's the incarnation, vindicated by the spirit, that's the resurrection, seen by angels, that's the ascension, proclaimed amongst the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. If there is any doubt to his humanity, Paul puts the issue to rest here in Philippians 2 and verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Now that verb, being found, herusko, means to be discovered by examination and inquiry. In other words, his humanity was not a thing that anyone questioned, since everyone around him, both enemies and friends, had plenty of time to determine whether or not he was human. And what they found was that he had the fashion, the schema, the appearance of a person, of a man. There was nothing different about Jesus' appearance than any other person. He was born like any other child. Luke 2, 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. He grew up like any other child. Luke 2, 52, he kept growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. He learned a trade, Mark 6, 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Again, he became a carpenter just like Joseph, his adopted father. He grew hungry, he grew thirsty, he grew tired. Matthew 4, 2, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. John 4, 6-7, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Mark chapter 4, and verse 38, Jesus himself was in the stern of the ship, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him. Jesus cried. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. You see, taking on a flesh was only the beginning, though, of his humbling. He humbled himself not only in taking on flesh, but in obeying his parents. Luke 2, 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and continued in subjection to them. Here is the God of the world, the creator of the universe, in human flesh as a child, being obedient to his mother and father. He humbled himself and was obedient not only to his parents, but to the law of God. John eight forty six. which of you convicts me of sin? In other words, look at me and, and is there any law that I have broken? Is there any law of God that I have somehow violated? And of course, Hebrews 4, 15 confirms that answer to be no. He was tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. He humbled himself and was obedient to the laws of men. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God, Matthew twenty two twelve b Jesus humbled himself and was baptized in order to outwardly identify with sinners, though he himself was sinless. Matthew three fourteen to 15, John tried to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
than he permitted him. Jesus humbled himself when he washed the feet of his disciples. John 13, 4-5, he got up from the supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, girded himself, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus humbled himself when he refused to defend himself at his mock trial. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. 1 Peter 2, 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And finally, he humbled himself when he was crucified between two common criminals. Luke 23, 33, they came to a place called the Skull, and there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. You see, without protest, Jesus takes on the role of the Savior of mankind by emptying himself and by humbling himself. But acquiescence also means that Jesus submitted himself. He not only emptied himself, he not only humbled himself, he had to submit himself. The Creator submitted himself to being bound by creation. The self-sufficient one was bound by thirst, by hunger, by sleep. The eternal one was now bound by time. The lawgiver was bound by the law, and the ultimate end of his humility was that the life giver was bound by death, but death had no power over Jesus. No, Jesus submitted to the Father's will to the point of death. Look at verse 8 again of Philippians 2. He became obedient, not to death, but to the point of death, even the death on a cross. This was total, complete degradation. In his death, Jesus was disgraced before man and accursed before God. Obedience that culminates in such death is not instantaneous, folks. This was learned. This was learned submission over years of experience. And he learned this submission, he learned this obedience over the course of his life through the various sufferings he experienced. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Verse 4 of Isaiah 53 says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. He was oppressed, he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 7. Jesus suffered contempt. He suffered rejection, not just from religious leaders, but from his own family, from his community, and even from his own disciples. He suffered from sorrow. His sorrow was driven by the unbelief of people, by the wrath of the religious, and the pettiness of his disciples. He suffered from grief, literally disease or sickness. Each and every time he healed the infirmed, he was touched by their infirmity and identified with their sins. All of this and more, Jesus suffered. Yet he suffered these things to learn obedience. As God, Jesus understood obedience. But as man, he learned obedience. And not only does this confirm his humanity, but it demonstrates that Jesus is able to understand suffering since he learned it by experience. Now, Paul emphasizes Jesus' death as the ultimate submission to the Father because the means of his death was the ultimate humiliation. To Rome, the Romans considered death by crucifixion the most humiliating form of punishment. They reserved it only for the non-citizen and the worst denizen of society. There they take a man, 
or a woman. They hang them on that cross. They nail them to that cross and strip them naked to lay there gasping for every last breath. For the Jews, crucifixion was more than just humiliating. It was offensive. Galatians 3.13, quoting Deuteronomy 21, verse 23. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The degree of physical suffering associated with his death are unimaginable. The night before his death, Jesus suffered in agony, the stress so great that blood vessels in his sweat glands ruptured. In being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground, Luke twenty-two forty-four. After his arrest, Jesus was mocked and tortured. The blow of the whip cut into the subcutaneous tissue, breaking capillaries and veins. An extended period of whipping eventually tore into his back muscles. The crown of thorns, about three inches in length, were driven into his scalp. And upon the arrival at the crucifixion, the scene of suffering only grew worse. Jesus also that he might sanctify us through his own blood suffered outside the gate. Hebrews 13, 12. He's stripped naked. He's exposed before the gathering crowd. He's nailed to the cross, his lacerated background into a wooden beam. Iron spikes five to seven inches long driven through his hand and feet. Rupturing the median nerve in his hand and the plantar nerve in the foot produced the most agonizing shooting pain throughout his arms and legs. Every breath he took required pushing and pulling with his feet and arms already screaming in pain. As well with each push his already bloody back, ground against the wooden beam. And as the day wore on, his upper body cramped and breath became more difficult. While all this is unimaginable, it was not the greatest suffering of his death. The greatest suffering that he experienced was the rejection of his Father and the Spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In those final three hours, those three hours of darkness, Jesus experienced eternal separation from God and punishment for sin. And he did it all so that you and I would not need to know separation from God. So that you and I would escape the punishment of our sin. Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He is the acquiescent Savior. He emptied himself. He humbled himself. He submitted himself. In order to redeem man, God sent his Son to suffer our punishment, eternal separation from God. He sent him as an offering for sin. And the amazing part of all this is that he willingly acquiesced. Jesus willingly emptied himself, willingly humbled himself, willingly submitted himself. And he did it with joy. Notice what Hebrews 12.2 says. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, I've got to ask you. What do you think of the acquiescent Savior? Are you saved? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Have you been delivered from eternal separation from God? Has the acquiescent Savior redeemed you from your sin and given you eternal life with God? Have you repented of your sin? Acts 3.19, repent and return so your sins may be wiped away. Have you placed your faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection? The gospel is this. It's of first importance that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. 
Have you confessed Him as your Lord? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. Forever, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If Jesus was willing to lay aside His rights and obey the Father, then should not we as well? If He was willing to humble Himself, should not we? If He was willing to submit Himself, should not we? 1 Peter 2.21 You have been called for this purpose. Since Christ suffered for you, He has left you an example for you to follow in His steps. The command in Philippians 2.5 is clear. Now remember, at the beginning of this sermon, I said there were two things. First of all, what did we see? We saw key statements, key truths regarding our Lord and Savior. But second, there's key, there's key practical steps on how we can get along. You want to get along with your fellow believer? You want to know why you don't get along with your fellow believer? It's real simple. Let's go back to verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. See, folks, we've got to think. We've got to act like Christ. Have this attitude in yourself. In other words, what does that mean? It means you, Christian, need to lay aside your rights. You, Christian, need to humble yourself before God. You, Christian, need to submit yourself to Jesus as Lord. I'll tell you, Christians, churches, they'd be a whole lot better. There'd be a whole lot less problems. There'd be a whole lot less disagreements if we would lay aside our rights, humble ourselves before God, and submit to Jesus as Lord. How different would our church be if we acquiesced like Jesus did. How different would we treat one another if we acquiesced like Jesus did? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, the great, the glorious one, we come before you through the servant, through the acquiescent Savior, Jesus Christ. And we give you all the praise and all the glory that in eternity past you formed a plan, you decreed according to your will to send your Son and your son acquiesced to become our Redeemer. Father, Lord, we confess that we're not worthy of that. But Lord, in spite of our unworthiness, your son is the worthy one, the worthy lamb. And because of him, we are worthy in you. And so, Lord, we submit ourselves to you. Father, we lay aside our rights, we humble ourselves, we submit to you as our Lord. Father, we confess we're sinners. Lord, it's not easy. It's not, it's not our natural bent to lay aside our rights. It's not a natural bent to humble ourselves. It's not our natural bent to submit ourselves. And so, Father, when we fail, I ask that you'd forgive us. Father, keep us from ourselves. Keep us from the evil one. And Lord, as you do a good work in us and see it through to the day of completion, may you get all the praise and all the glory. And to this we say, Amen.